0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Lots of you will know that we run a farm here in Waterloo and one of the things that we do at that farm is we work with young people who struggle with learning in a classroom environment. We work with them on emotional intelligence, on behaviour management, on character development and it's all based on the idea that the farm provides a therapeutic space to help them grow. One of the things that I've always enjoyed about this is that sometimes we'll get teenagers on the farm who have grown up in the centre of London, often in blocks of flats without gardens, and they've previously had no interest at all in animals or in nature. But then over the weeks that they come to the farm, they'll start to develop a real affinity for growing veg or for feeding goats, all things that would have been totally new to them. One of my favourite moments on the farm over the last few years was with a small group of teenage boys. They all came into the space, airpods in, heads down. You know how some teenagers can be too cool for all this. But by the end of the session, they were all completely engaged in farm life. And right at the end, after they'd been taught how to loosen soil with a garden fork, our farm manager said to one of them, Hey, grab that green stuff over there and give it a pull." This boy grabbed the foliage. He yanked it, and out of the ground came a bunch of carrots. The response from this group of boys was brilliant. First they all gasped as one, then they all shouted, Whoa! They really could not believe that actual carrots, like the carrots they saw in the supermarket, had grown just under that soil. I was reminded of that story last week when I was listening to Rebecca talk about what Jesus' death meant. It might seem like a strange thing to pop into my head at that moment, but the link is that Rebecca also talked about what Jesus' death didn't mean. She said that it wasn't, despite what she's heard many times over the years. She said it wasn't the case that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for her sins, which got me thinking about sacrifice, which got me thinking about crops which got me thinking about that group of teenagers. I'll explain why. Where does the idea of Jesus being sacrificed for my sins come from? To answer this, we need to start by going even further back in history than Jesus. The roots of this go back thousands of years, the times when people didn't really have much more idea about how crops grew than those teenage boys did. Back then, your food was whatever grew in the ground in front of you. And how much food you had was determined by whether the weather conditions were right. So if you had the right mix of sun and rain, the crops would grow and you would eat well. Eventually, over time, people started to understand this a bit more. They worked out that you needed some sun, but not too much sun. And you also needed some rain, but not too much rain. But the problem is that back then there wasn't much understanding about meteorology, how weather systems worked. And people believed that the weather was controlled by the gods. And whether the weather conditions were good or not, and whether crops grew or not, was dependent on how the weather gods were feeling about them. So over time, people started to do things that they thought might make the gods happy. If it had been sunny for a long time and the crops were too dry, they thought the God of the rain was angry with them. So they would sacrifice animals to the God of rain. Or if they hadn't had enough sun because it was raining all the time, they thought the God of the sun was angry with them. So they'd sacrifice animals to the sun god instead. So when we get into the period of history that's covered by the Bible, at the beginning of the Old Testament, that is where people are in their understanding of God and how God's work. So in this context, I guess it isn't a surprise when we read stories like Leviticus chapter 7, right at the beginning of the Bible, where Moses gives these people laws on how sacrifice should be done in order to please God. But then we work our way through the Old Testament and we get to the book of Psalms. And Psalm 40 verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Hang on. God doesn't desire sacrifice. God doesn't want us to sacrifice things to him. And then we get to the book of Hosea and God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what's going on here? Well, in all these verses, God is moving humanity on, moving people on into a better understanding of who God is and what God wants from them. I don't want you to sacrifice things. I desire steadfast love. I'm about life, not death. God is gently nudging humanity forward, encouraging them to let go of their understanding of who God is. And through David, who wrote Psalm 40, and through Hosea, God is encouraging humanity to embrace this new understanding of who God is. But despite this, some people today still see Jesus' crucifixion as God needing a sacrifice to appease God's anger. Why is that? Last week, Rebecca talked about how Jesus died because people killed him. Jesus didn't die because of my sins. Jesus died because of the sins of the people around him. Jesus died because of the sins of the Roman leaders who were worried that he was going to lead a revolution. He died because of the sins of the Jewish chief priests and the Pharisees who didn't like what Jesus was teaching the Jewish people. But Rebecca also talked about how she was taught that Jesus did die on the cross to save her from her sins. This idea is known as, long word alert, it's known as penal substitutionary atonement theory. It's the idea that God needs the sacrificial blood of God's Son to appease God's anger so that me and you can be forgiven. Now what's interesting is that I'm sure that many of us grew up thinking that penal substitution was the only explanation about what happened on the cross. But throughout Christian history, there have been different takes on this story. Theologians have wrestled with trying to find meaning in this and have come up with lots of different answers. It's like there were four people standing on the street looking at a house. A structural surveyor might say, the roof, the chimneys, the doors, they look fine. There's no obvious evidence of external damage. But on a house this age, I'd really want to check for damp and dry rot. An architect might look at the same house and say, red brickwork, high-pitched roof, bay windows, this is a classic 1890s Victorian terrace. Or an estate agent might say, well, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, a decent-sized garden at the front, it's worth about £800,000. But you might look at it and say, I don't care about any of that, it was my childhood home. Trying to work out what happened on the cross is a bit like that. We're all looking at the same thing, but we all see something different in it. Now, penal substitution is one of those theories about what happened. In modern Western Christianity, it's the most popular theory. Although in some other places like Japan, for example, in Japanese Christianity, it's not part of their understanding at all. The thing is that not only is penal substitution different to the other major ideas, but I would argue it comes from an entirely different place. To go back to our story about the house, it's like there was a fifth person on the street, but they were actually describing a tree in the garden. Penal substitution is the only theory which focuses on God's anger and not on God's love. It's the only understanding of the cross which says that God needs Jesus to die in order to appease God's anger. And I think there are a number of issues with this. See, throughout the Bible, we're told to forgive. Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Matthew 6 says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. And Luke 6 says, forgive and you will be forgiven. And there are loads more examples of this throughout the Bible. So God calls us to forgive other people. Yet God can't forgive us without requiring Jesus to die. If that's true, God lives by a different moral code, a worse moral code than God expects us to live by. And every time I look at this subject, I keep coming back to some core principles, some absolute fundamentals of my faith. God, the Bible says, is love. God is love. And when Jesus was asked to sum up the commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Love, love, love. Not anger, not a blood sacrifice, not requiring death to forgive, but always forgiving out of a heart of love. So what's the link between Jesus and the sacrificial system? Well, I think it's this. I think that Jesus dying on the cross is the once and for all sacrifice. The sacrifice is the example that ends the sacrificial system. It's the death that says this is not God's way. God's way is not about sacrifice. It's not about death. It's not about violence. Jesus' death is the ultimate example of love. That Jesus would take all the hate the world could throw at him, all the violence the world could throw at him, but refuse to respond to that with more hate and with more violence. Jesus broke the system. The cross shows once and for all that our God, that the God I choose to serve every day and choose to follow every day, that God is not about retribution. That God is not about anger. That God is not about violence. But that God is about love. And that God is and forever will be love, love, love. And there's one more part of this story. In first century Palestine, people claiming to be the Messiah were ten a penny. They would rise up against the Romans. They would claim to be the saviour of the Jewish people. Then the Romans would hang them on a cross and that would be the end of the story. But this story is different because three days after Jesus went to the cross as the perfect example of God's love, he then came back to life as the ultimate example of how love is stronger than even death how love is stronger than violence, how in the end, despite all hate and violence has to throw at this world, in the end, love will win. It might not seem like that to you on a day-to-day basis at the moment. You might be living through a difficult time where all you can see is darkness, but the resurrection story is that however dark the darkness, hold on, hold on, Because in the end, love wins an eternal victory. So let's spend a little bit of time reflecting on how we might live in the light of this love. Because I think we all know that just because the cross and resurrection show an eternal victory, that doesn't mean that everything is well in the here and now. So how do we live today in the light of this example of ultimate love? in Bath, in London, in wherever you're watching this from. I think that the death and resurrection of Jesus calls us to live radically and to love radically. I wonder how my life would look if every decision I made was born out of a real desire to live radically and to love radically. What might that mean for the way I spend my money? What might it mean for the way I spend my time How would it change the relationships I have with my friends, but also with those I struggle with? If I really, honestly prioritise trying to live my life as an example of God's ultimate love, what would that look like? Do you know what? I think it would look a bit like sacrifice. I think it might mean that I sacrifice some of my money. That I sacrifice a bigger house or a better car. I think it might mean that I sacrifice some of my time that I sacrifice that evening when I'm tired and I'd like to just sit in front of the TV because I know that I really should ring my mate who's struggling with that thing. And that, I think, is a sacrificial system that's worth getting on board with.